Last Sunday, we talked about how God pursues us. He actively and fervently seeks us out because he wants to have a personal relationship with us. And we looked at several examples from scripture, one of which was the story of Adam and Eve. And we know the story, but let's take a look again. They were instructed not to eat from the tree of knowledge, but did so anyway. And in embarrassment and shame, they hid from God with whom until that point, they enjoyed a close and personal relationship. If you'd like to read along, we're going to pick up the story at Genesis 3, verse 6. We're going to start at, sorry, verse 8. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man. He said, where are you? Now, remember, God was seeking them out, even despite the disobedience and sin. And that's what he does. So verse 10, it says, Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. There's, I added emphasis. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. I'm going to skip to verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree, about which I commanded you, you must not eat from. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow... You will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. Skipping forward to verse 23. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Now, a couple things to note here. The snake is cursed, right? God says you are cursed. And the ground is cursed. God says you are cursed. But he didn't use the word curse for man. He is disciplined. He disciplined Adam and Eve. And according to the true discipline, what that means, God continued to love both man and woman. In fact, in verse 21, we find it says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. You see, he still continued to take care of them. He still pursued them. He still cared for them. But he had to discipline them for breaking the commandment. And I think it broke God's heart to have the relationship damaged like that. So he was willing to discipline, but not to curse or destroy man and woman. He held them responsible for the commandment they had broken because that is what a good father does. They broke the rule. They had to own it. But I would say they really didn't take ownership or responsibility, did they? The man blamed the woman. The woman blamed the snake. Their children didn't fare much better. Better. In the very next chapter of the Bible, we find the story of Cain and Abel, beginning in Genesis 4, verse 1. It says, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. The next few verses describe how Cain became jealous of Abel. But I want to pick up at verse 8. It says, now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked the brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? 
I don't know, he replied. And there's this famous line, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and is driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crop for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Now here's what's interesting. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land. I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So this is an interesting point. God didn't strike Abel down for sinning and killing his brother. He let him live with the guilt of what he had done and disciplined him by driving him off the land and forced him to become a lost wanderer. And listen again to Cain's plea from verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer of the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. See, hell isn't hell just because of the flames and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth and all those nasty things you hear and read about and think about hell being, okay? Hell is a horrible place because it's removed from God. It is literally the absence of God's presence. And just like heaven is heaven because that's where God is and where Jesus is still working on your behalf, that's what makes that good. His presence being gone is what makes hell so bad. And Cain knew that. The psalmist captures this well in the 73rd Psalm, verse 25. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? The earth has nothing I desire beside you. Now, discipline can look like a, a lot of things, all of which are undesirable, but, but punishment, punishment is very obvious. It's a separation from God. We were subject to punishment for our sins before the redeeming power of the cross. The apostle Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. And the Greek word for, for death is thanatos, which can mean either literal death or spiritual death. And both, both are obviously very bad. But this morning's message is about taking responsibility for your words, responsibility for your thoughts and your actions. We should avoid sin and disobedience to God, and we, and we know that. This starts by knowing what is right and what is wrong. And biblical text uses the word shall instead of should, because shall is such a stronger word. You are familiar with the thou shalt nots, the Ten Commandments. And they were given to God's people as basic rules for their lives. And this is found in the First Testament books of Exodus and Deuteronomy. And the books of the same name in the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew Bible. And they're also found in the Quran. Now this is interesting. Do you remember how I shared that the things that are most important in life are the things that unite us? And the things that unite us are the things that are really important. One God. There may be three religions, but you can, I held them up on a screen, the Hebrew Bible, the Muslim Quran, and the First Testament or the Old Testament of the Christian Bible. The Ten Commandments are found in these. These are the rules we are to live by. And these Ten Commandments apply to God's people, which is everyone. These commandments weren't only rules or the final goal, right? These were the basics, the starting point and the foundation for godly living. And we know these. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make yourself a carved image or likeness of anything. And he gets specific in heaven or on the earth or in the sea. You shall not take the name of the Lord God in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife, servant, female servant, his ox, his donkey, anything that is your neighbor's. And these, each one of these are, are a study in themselves. But you know these, and these are the most basic 10 rules. These are just the price of admission to obedient living. It starts there. And I dare say that we haven't even mastered all these yet. But another good litmus test for godly living is to consider that whatever it is you're thinking or saying or doing or seeing, whatever it is, remember that God is always right there with you. Now, how does that make you feel? Bold and confident or a little bit cringy, as they would say. From last week's scripture, remember Psalm 139.7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Now, those are encouraging words. And if that word doesn't bring you peace, then there's something in your life that isn't right. So ask yourself, would I invite Jesus to be here with me? Would I welcome him to know my thoughts and to worship what I am doing? Your response to that question reveals everything you need to know about the goodness of what it is you're doing. And this is the hypothetical. Jesus is here with you even now. And those are the thou shalt nots. What about what we should do? The good that we were created to do and the good is marked by God's character. And do you want to, you know, we have the Ten Commandments as easy. The Ten Commandments we'll probably memorize them in Sunday school. Wouldn't it be nice if the things we should be doing are written down too? Ta-da. It's in the Bible. It's not numbered that way. The whole book is a story. God's character is revealed through the Bible. It's the authoritative text for our lives, and the nature of God is revealed through the Testaments and is demonstrated by the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Everything you need to know about God and everything you should know about God is revealed through here. We're also taught these things in places like this as we gather on Sunday morning to hear and understand God's word, as we examine the Bible on our own and in small group Bible studies. And as we talked about a few weeks ago in the message on legacy, we're taught by other Christians and our parents who pass down the importance of godly living and who Jesus Christ is and should be in our lives. And we, of course, learn valuable lessons that are taught to us through our life experience, both good and bad. And as your faith is stretched, you learn to develop what the Apostle Paul describes as perseverance. We talked about that on a Wednesday night study. Your experience joy is the hope you place in the Lord is met with his faithfulness. Right? A promise kept, a covenant honored. And you discover peace and confidence as you come to understand that he is in control. And that's a good thing. And as we learn about God, we come to know whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. I love the way the Apostle Paul strung that together to describe it. Pursuing these things is godly living. But there's a warning, James 4, 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is a sin. We have a responsibility as Christians. We don't get to claim ignorance of the law. We know what it is we should be doing. And owning what we do is called accountability. And whether we choose to own it here or now or not, we are 
we are not relieved of this responsibility. Romans 4.12 reminds us that each of us will give an account of ourselves to God someday for everything we've done and said and did. So we're going to own it one way or the other. You know, last week we talked about being responsible for the last step in response to God. And you recall if God is a thousand steps away, or as I embellished well on this Max Lucado quote, I said, if God is even 10,000 steps away, he will take every step but the last one. And that last one is our responsibility. And more often than not, this step involves repentance on our part. As we were reminded last week, we can encourage someone to go to church. I mean, we can drag our kids to church. We can guilt people to church. We can, we can encourage them to, to participate in the service, to sing the songs, to give to the offering plate. We can even talk people into being baptized, right? But only a person can take that step for themselves that connects them relationally to God. That's only be done by that person themselves. And this is true of repentance as well. So I'm going to start with holding ourselves accountable. And then we're going to talk about some of the other ways we're held accountable. And this is such an important step that Jesus makes two pointed statements. One in Matthew 5, 29 through 30, and the other one in Mark 9 through 43. And both say the same thing. He tells you that if it's better to lose a part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And he speaks of the eye and the hand and the foot. Now, Jesus often speaks with allegory and parables, so his instructions may not be literal, but the message loses no impact. Remove anything from your life, anything from your life that causes you to stumble. Do not let yourself be ensnared by sin. Trusted friends and partners in faith can and should hold each other accountable as well. I'm going to spend a little more time on this one because I I think this is a way we sometimes fail each other, especially in a climate of compromise in the name of being politically correct. James 5.16 instructs us, he says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And Luke 17.3 says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Now think of this in two folds, right? If he sins in general against God then rebuke him. Hey, brother, I love you, but you know, you're a liar, you're whatever it may be. I, I see you doing this thing that is not how you know you should be living. And if he repents, then, then God forgives him. So you need to forgive him too. But if we are supposed to love as God loves, then when someone sins against us, when we say, hey, you've broken my heart, you've hurt my feelings, you've wronged me, and they re- repent, then we are supposed to forgive them as well. If God forgives them, then who am I to hold on to a grudge? And accountability is an act of love. John 13, 34 captures Jesus' words. A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love another. Okay? It's not just love at the same time. He said love in the same way he has loved you, which is enough to not let you go anywhere but heaven when your time on earth is done. Jesus loves you that much. We are called to love each other that much that we are not going to let a single person not go with us when we go to heaven. When John 3.18 pleads, it says, Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Let's be doers of these commandments. And we have a responsibility to hold others accountable. 
Matthew 5.19 says, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We have a responsibility as, as Christians who know what is good and right and noble and pure and true to pursue these things and to teach these things and live these examples. And when we turn a blind eye or, or if we speak contrary to that, that is not, not good. But I don't want us to be so determined to find or to point out other people's faults that, that our motive becomes corrupted, right? We think of people like this that, that just stand up there and, and they seem maybe even hypocritical. We know this one from Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye and do not notice the log is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me have, take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? He says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now there's a psychological theory that, that kind of says, and I'm paraphrasing a lot, the things that irritate you, what you accuse of others of doing that really annoy you, it's probably something you struggle with yourself, right? If Sherry was here, she'd be giving me that look. You're welcome to give it to me. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> you know, um, and... But anyway, so what I want you to do is when you find a fault in someone else that just really rubs you, especially if it seems inordinately bothersome, take a moment and reflect on yourself and see if that's something you have or have struggled with or do struggle with. And then respond with grace and mercy, not only to them, but to yourself, right? I'm going to read from Paul's letter to the Galatians 6, 1 through 5, and I'm going to read from the Amplified Version, so it's going to have some extra words here says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin, who you are spiritual, you who are spiritual, he says that is you who are responsive to the guidance of the spirit, are to restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness, not with a sense of superiority or self-righteousness, keeping a watchful eye on yourself so that you are not tempted as well. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the requirements of the law of Christ, that is the law of Christian love. For if anyone thinks he is something special, when in fact he is nothing, special except in his own eyes, he deceives himself. But each one must carefully scrutinize his own work, examining his actions, attitudes, and behavior. And then he can have the personal satisfaction and inner joy of doing something commendable without comparing himself to another. For every person will have to bear with patience his own burden of faults and shortcomings for which he alone is responsible." a lot of stuff in that and we hold ourselves accountable and we hold each other accountable and the holy spirit holds us accountable maybe you call this a conscience but that's that inner conviction jesus said in john 16 7 that it was for our benefit that he would go away so we would receive the holy spirit now i know the disciples were just they didn't know what was going to happen next. We know the rest of the story, but they didn't. Here was this man that they'd followed for years and, and knew and loved and saw him these things. And he's saying, I'm going away. I'm going away. And then, of course, when he was killed, you know, they had to be scared. But Jesus said, I, in fact, it's best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. Other translations say the helper won't come. We know this to be the spirit. He says, if I do go away, then I will send him to you. Jesus knew that there was more work to be done here and he knew that it's best for us that he goes away so he can continue his work in heaven and so that the Holy Spirit can come and do the work that only it can do, that work that comes within us. And accountability makes us more like Christ. 
the most beautiful thing about having accountability is how quickly it can drive us towards sanctification. As we increase in sanctification, we increase in holiness. And as we increase in holiness, we become more and more like Christ. The more quickly we cleanse our life and our mind and our habits and our words and thoughts and actions of sin, the more holy we become. It is through a life of continual repenting, right? This is a cycle from sin that we learn to hate the sin that God hates and to love the things that he loves, which includes us. Now, I just want to share a couple illustrations. I'm, I'm a big music guy. I won't play the music, but I want to share lyrics from a song called Keep Making Me by the Sidewalk Prophets. And I'm just going to share the words. I'm not even going to sing them. You're welcome. He says, make me broken so I can be healed. He says, I'm so callous, now I can't feel. I want to run to you with heart wide open, make me broken. And he says, make me empty so I can be filled. Because I'm still holding onto my will. And I'm completed when you are with me, make me empty. And the last verse is, make me lonely so I can be yours. Till I want no one more than you, Lord. Because in the darkness, I know you will hold me, make me lonely. And the chorus is, till you are my one desire. Till you are my one true love, till you are my breath, my everything, Lord, keep making me. Every now and then I, I share these videos from the skit guys, and they do a great job, so I won't even try to act this one out. But Patrick, if you would share this video. Ephesians 2.10 says we are God's masterpiece. I don't know about you, but when I look in the mirror, I don't see a masterpiece, but I want to. So I go to God and I pray. Dear Heavenly Father, would you do whatever it takes to mold me into the image of your Son? Make me your masterpiece. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hi. Oh, who are you? I'm God. You said the prayer, so here I am. That's how it works. <laughs> you're not God. No, I am. Okay, uh, if you're God, what does Lamentations 15.9 say? Lamentations is a very short book. It only has five chapters. Why is it so short? I was tired of lamenting. You are God. What's that about? These are the tools I'm going to use to make you into my original masterpiece. This is the process. I thought you were a carpenter. That's my son. Let's get busy. Okay. I'm going to bring up things in your life that don't belong in your life. And uh, start right here. Your anger. Ow! I created the emotion, but you use it in the wrongest of ways. You compare yourself to others instead of me. And you lie. You tell little white lies. You're so afraid of confrontation. You're becoming a people pleaser. Okay, time out. Um, I think you've done some really good work, and I'm looking pretty good right now. When you look in the mirror, who do you see? I see me. Okay, then I need to keep chiseling away because ultimately, you and other people need to see my son. Okay, but when I look like Jesus, people get uncomfortable, and I don't think I'm supposed to do that. So what you're saying is you'd rather play God in certain areas of your life than for me to be God over your whole life. No, what I'm saying is you've grown me to here. Maybe we take a break from each other for a while, all right? And then I'll stay here, and then you come back, and we can grow some more. You never just take a break from me. You're either moving toward me or away from me, but you never just plateau. What you're doing is called control. Do you want to control things in your life or can I chisel? Control, chisel, control, chisel. No, 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 chisel. All right, here we go. Can we chisel where I want? That's called control. Okay, sorry. Mm. This right here, that secret sin, that thing that you run to whenever you're hurting, you're angry, you're lonely, you're tired. Do you want to keep rearranging this in your life or do you want me to chisel it out? Chisel it. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's your whole life. Oh, this, this hurts, okay? I don't think you understand this pain. 
Don't talk to me about pain. I know all about pain. I sent my son to die on the cross for pain, for sin, but also did it for another reason, to give you freedom. Do you know what insanity is? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. And there are things that you are doing in your life that are insane. Allow me to chisel them out of your life. I know, but I've let you down so many times, God. No, you were never holding me up. Okay, then chisel away. But just be prepared for what you're gonna find in there. Cause I know who's inside there. God, I get up every morning and I hate what I see in the mirror cause inside is this scared, stupid kid. And I try, I try, but I can't, I can't be who everybody else expects me to be. God, I can't even be who I wanna be, much less who you created me to be. So chisel away and just know what you're gonna find in there. You have listened to so many voices, so many critics for far too long that are not for me, and you've bought into the lie. You think you're junk, don't you? When you lay your head down at night, at the end of the day, you think you're junk. I don't take time to make junk. I wanna show you something about my love. Reach in your back pocket. This is a, it's a page from a notebook when I was in college. How'd you get this? Hello? Oh yeah. Go ahead, read it. Dear God, did I hear you right? You said you want to use me, but I feel really useless. But if you can take this life, this mess of a life I have, and do with it what you want, I love you, God. I love you too. And I love you too much just to leave you where you're at. It's gonna be tough. Yes. But you bought into the lie thinking everything was gonna be easy when you said yes to me. There will be trouble in this world, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. I want you to do something. I want you to look out there and I want you to say, Tommy is God's original masterpiece. Tommy is God's? No, not the way you see yourself or you try so desperately for others to see you. But maybe for the first time in your life, the way I made you, the way I created you. Tommy? is God's original masterpiece. Yes, you are. And so are you. You are an original masterpiece. That's good stuff. There's a lot of good stuff in that one. I couldn't even begin to do that justice. 2 Timothy 1.7, encourage us, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, timidity, but a power of love and self-discipline. Self-discipline is the best way to remain obedient. It is one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, according to Jesus' own words, is the key to the greatest commandment. And I'll make this, this statement, and I'm going to live by it myself. Conviction is your best friend. If we stop feeling conviction, then we have bigger problems. As John 16, 8 says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Conviction, not condemnation. Even Matthew 18 speaks of correcting someone with gentleness. Friends, owning our failures means not denying them like the characters in Genesis. Owning means confessing, asking for forgiveness, accepting the forgiveness and trying again to not repeat our sins. And this is repenting. Owning means responding with action when you become aware of sin in yours or, or someone else's life. And as both the song and the video reminded us, sometimes God has to break us.
to reveal the good that is inside, the good that he created. So view these rules and the accompanying discipline as protection, a blessing, a sign of love. Long for the, protect, for the protection, long for the rules. The psalmist in 119.18.20 writes, says, Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws all the time. That's what makes us more like Christ. Let's make that our prayer. Creator God, you didn't make junk. You made us good and you made us to be good. Lord, we, we have all this stuff that clings to us as we go about life in this world. We try to please others. We try to, to just do what we think is right or popular. Lord, there are, there are parts of our life that we are just ashamed of. So Lord, as you seek us out, what you promise you will do, you will seek us, you will pursue us just like in Psalm 23, right? You will follow us all the days of our lives. Then, Lord, when you say, where are you, child? We'll say, here I am. And we'll step out from hiding and ask you to chisel away those imperfect parts of our life, no matter how bad it feels. God, in this way, become more Christ-like. Lord, I pray that we may be changed for what we've heard this morning, a renewed spirit of accountability for ourselves as we seek to be more and more like your son, as we seek to be that example in this world that needs an example so badly of what hope looks like, what love looks like, what forgiveness looks like, grace and mercy. Father, we thank you that you've given us the ability and the power to do so. Lord, it's the power of the cross that makes us so. May we never stop thanking you for that wonderful gift. In your son's name I pray, amen.